We have a special guest today on Go. We have Dr. Boyce Watkins. Let's go. So let's talk about uh, your movement. Can you kind of summarize your background uh, and what you're doing today? Yeah, well, you know, what we do with the Black Business School is uh, we believe in what we call the Black Core of Three, which is that we believe black people should educate our own children, create our own jobs, support black businesses. We should have the ability to do those three things. Um, basically, uh, we, uh, as, as, a, as a school, we have about 60,000 students now. Um, we actually, our students are better when it comes to wealth building and investing than most Americans. Uh, the, uh, I think, uh, 80, over 80% of all millionaires invest in the stock market for our students. We're approaching 90%. So our students literally have millionaire mentalities and they're going to, their children will be millionaires in a generation. Uh, and so basically what we believe is that while the educational model is wrong, we believe that, um, that universities are, are harming people by leaving them deep in debt. Uh, the average black college graduate uh, is is has has defaulted on their student loans. Many of them are going to die in debt, and we believe that we can offer a superior educational alternative uh, that is affordable for anybody. Uh, you know, so that's kind of what we're doing right now. One of the many reasons I love what you're doing is that you're optimizing the idea of financial literacy, investing, ownership, building businesses, uh, and you're packaging it. I don't know if this is intentional, but uh, kind of like in a, a, a religious way, I do not see a lot of folks going hard in the community with the teaching and the, the values that you're promoting in the community. Uh, is it, do you know of anybody who's kind of going real hard, particularly on like social media and with the younger generation? You know, there, there are people that are doing a great job, you know, like uh, Jay Morrison. I love him. Uh, Andre C. Hatchett, you know, who runs the Black Real Estate School. You know, there, there are people out there that are doing With it. With your approach, though, in, in um, terms of you're going, you're touching on stock, you're touching on real estate, you're touching on business capital, building businesses, building your marketing program. Are there other people, meaning that it, who would be the closest, what would be the closest entity to the Black Business School? Or is there one out there? I can't think of anything like that exactly. Um, and, and what I can say is that I think the reason that it's different from what you see out here is because it's, it's, it was my honest vision for the community. It was literally me saying, what does the black community need? And I didn't care what else was out there. I, I wasn't trying to fit it with a specific framework. It was just something that solved a specific problem. And that's something we talked about yesterday, uh, where a lot of folks, uh, you know, you want to own your own business, you want to raise capital, you want to be an entrepreneur, uh, but before you step out there and make so many sacrifices, you need to make sure that your business idea is sufficiently different. Uh, if it's a, if people have similar ideas, how are you applying it different? Are you applying it to a different demographic group, a different geographic area, but is the idea sufficiently uh, different? Yeah, I, I think that's very important. You know, um, I, I probably would have still done this even if there were a ton of people doing the same thing. Like if there was a hundred black business schools out there, you would still yeah, do it. Yeah, I probably would because I feel like it isn't just, you see a lot of people that have the same ideas, but different people have different abilities when it comes to the execution of the idea, right? Like uh, Facebook is, is there are thousands and thousands of social media networks and companies out here, but Facebook executes at a level that other people have a hard time competing with. And so I do believe 
there's something to be said about the dedication to the idea, what resources are put, me, are put behind the idea. So I tend to just personally have a, a mindset that's built on a, a type of abundance that basically says, you know what? Um, I don't have to invent the hamburger to be the, to, to open up a hamburger joint. You know, there can be a lot of other hamburger joints out here, but our hamburgers are going to be unique to us and, and what we believe is going to taste good. And also we're going to hustle up and we're going to put some energy behind, you know, selling and marketing these hamburgers. So a lot of times, you know, and this is a big deal because I think I see a lot of people that have that scarcity mindset where they won't even share their idea because they're afraid somebody's going to steal it. Um, I share ideas openly because I'm like, well, if you're going to steal it, go ahead and steal it and we'll see who does the best job in the execution. I know that when we set up our ideas, we have an entire team of experts that get behind the idea. We put money into the idea. We have bring resources to the idea. So our execution is going to allow us to stand out, even if other people are doing the same thing. You know, there's been some people who I believe would call Negroes. Uh, you've had kind of folks criticize, but that comes with the territory, right? You're building a, a multi-million dollar company, diversified company. You're doing it from scratch. Uh, you know, you're profitable, you're making moves, your business is growing, and you have some Negroes kind of stepping in saying, uh, hey, you know, we want you preaching victimology. Uh, we don't, black people don't have any money. Uh, stop looking at, you know, we could solve our own problems uh, or we could do a lot better. Uh, we want you preaching some of the old stuff. Uh, we don't want you uh, taking financial literacy, economic empowerment to the community because that hasn't been done before. Uh, or, you know, hey, Boyce is trying to get money from the community and he's selling stuff that's higher price than other stuff. And you can get that stuff elsewhere. But there's no, you can't see any kind of, similar enterprises in the community, preaching it like you're preaching it in the people's language with the political context. But they say that, hey, I can get the black business school stuff everywhere. But there's no other business kind of playing specifically targeting our people that does all the things that you do. Uh, how have you been able to kind of handle some of the, the, the Negroes out there who are you're trying to, you know, you're building your movement, you're profitable, you're growing, and I have these Negroes criticizing what I'm doing, criticizing me, they want me to do it a certain way, but you're just doing your thing. Well, you know, they have a saying in China that, um, that the fattest pig always gets slaughtered, you know, and so anybody who tries to do something special, different, unique, um, and, and, and successful, you're gonna have you're going to have people that are going to try to challenge you um, for whatever reason, whatever that reason may be. They may feel they can do it better. They may not like you. They may have their own insecurities, their own issues or whatever. And, and it is what it is. And, and I'm going to tell you what, um, you know, what, one thing I've learned and everything, every journey helps you grow if you, you know, confront the challenge in the right way. And um, some of the best advice I got on that kind of thing was actually from uh, Louis Farrakhan who told me that you, first of all, have to gain the capacity to forgive those that really, really hate you, you know, which was hard for me. It takes time to get to that point because I'm not that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm built to be a fighter and I had to learn that fighting, that you got to have more than one move. Your, your one move can't always be, you know, to growl back, to, to just always bust back. Um, and that's the first thing. So I learned that, you know, the, the strength and the power of, of, of forgiveness and love and, and, and support. Um, and the other thing is, uh, that, you know, you can learn a lot from your critics. Sometimes your critics are right. Sometimes your critics are pointing out a flaw that you need to address. 
And if all you can do is see yourself as some sort of victim of some sort of, you know, undeserved attack, then you're going to totally miss the lesson that the universe has for you that maybe you need to get your shit right. Right. And that's again that I know this from my own experience of having to grow in the midst of, of, of criticism. So my my position on a lot of this is very basic. You know, I'm not interested in further victimizing the victimologists by counterattacking every time they have something to say. Um, I just my belief is, look, the door's open. You know, we uh, will educate anybody who wants to be educated, anybody who has had a legitimate concern. We say, hey, come join. Come check out the black business. Find out why our you know, customer satisfaction rate is 97.5%. Like, find out why so many people love what we're doing. And then if you see something we're not doing quite right or a way we can serve the community better, we would love to partner with you. And, uh, you know, because really, truth be told, is that I kind of feel bad for you if you are a black person who really believes that there is no way that we can elevate ourselves out of this condition. You know, I, in a way, I, I worry about you because I'm thinking, you know, what, who, who did this to you that made you think that we can't do anything? We're the greatest people in the history of the world. We have a history, to, we have thousands of years of evidence to that effect. So my basic argument is maybe we don't see eye to eye, but maybe if we take the time to try to learn from each other, we can grow. So I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to fight against that stuff. I'm, I'm just going to keep on going. You've been called by some Negroes uh, the black version of Rush Limbaugh, uh, <laughs> that you're a black conservative. So, so they believe that that is uh, a, a very bad thing. Uh, uh, and, uh, but it sounds divorced. It sounds divorced from actual uh, black nationalist movements, right? In terms of building our own institutions, doing for self. Uh, you see what these other folks are doing. You can do it too. Uh, that you're going to need to build something. If you're not going to separate, if you're not going to you know, go to the extreme and separate from America, you better optimize the opportunities and the realities today to invest and build for you and your children. You can't be stuck in the middle. Which, which one are you going to do? Mm. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you what. Um, you know, I haven't, I can't think of any time, you know, where America's really opened a lot of doors, you know, for me. Um, America is a place where uh, in a white supremacist system, I've been allowed basic opportunities, you know, like to go to public school or to go to a white university or get a job working for a white man. Those are basic things I've been allowed. Um, but when it came time for me to try to get the big piece of chicken, for me to get as much or more power than the white man has in my life, um, I had to fight for that. You know, I had to fight for that. He didn't, he didn't hand me nothing. He didn't open no doors, none of that. Um, and, um, and, and, and that's really what I want people to kind of understand is that you're going to meet that natural resistance. Um, in terms of like what you said about, you know, being called a Rush Limbaugh type figure, I see that, okay, well, I guess that's a perspective, right? That's what, I guess what somebody may think. Um, now, remember, there's different reasons somebody might say that. Teaching folks that you have the power, you could do it. That's Rush Limbaugh nowadays, right. with a lot of liberals. Uh, <laughs> is that, man, you know, he's, he's telling me I got I to gotta go out there and try harder. <laughs> he's telling me instead of talking to 10 investors, I got to go after 100. Yeah. Well, he's Rush Limbaugh. Well, you know. I got to do something. Well, I think it, I think it hurts us when we allow the concept of personal responsibility to be hijacked by the Republicans. 
you know, just because you're telling people that they can do things for themselves, that does not make you uh, a, a right wing conservative. That just makes you a human being that believes in your infinite potential to accomplish anything you want. Uh, that's universal. That's not a, a Democrat or Republican it's an animal concept. instinct in terms of you look at how animals uh, take care of each other or think about survival. Yeah, absolutely. They're not getting wrapped up in all these ideologies. I know at the end of the day, I need to eat. Mm. The generations coming uh, behind me are going to need to eat. I want them to have a good living. And I know what I got to do to provide for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and what, I, what I kind of speculate, honestly, is like, I learned this a lot. Uh, I have a leadership coach named Nicole who works with me about how to, how to use your power more effectively and, and, and conscientiously and, you know, and stuff like that. And, um, and one of the things that she introduced me to that I really appreciated was uh, this idea that, that people are really inherently different, that they, they, that the way you see the world may not be the way somebody else sees it. You know, uh, she, she had me take this uh, 16 personalities test and I found out about all the different personality types of even just within my team uh, and how different people will hear the same thing and come away with a totally different you know, perspective. So, you know, what that showed me is that you can't go into a conversation assuming that the other person thinks the way you do. You can't. You have to go into the conversation thinking, okay, what kind of person am I dealing with and what's going to make this the most productive relationship we can have, right? You can adjust yourself. Now, you could just sit around and be pissed off because they don't get what you're saying and they're mad at you or whatever, but that's not going to change anything. You can't change what other people do, but you can change how you adjust to the situation. So, you know, it, so what happened was first I applied that to my team just to understand the people I work with and get them in the right positions and all that. Then I started applying that to the world and I realized like, oh, wait a minute. You know, if I'm out here and I'm and I'm this guy who is built in a specific way, you know, my dad was kind of an alpha type of guy. You know, my dad, would he's killed people before. Like, that's the type of man my father is. He's a military man, police officer. He believes in discipline. He, he's one of those, like, just, like, when he quit smoking, I said, how did you stop smoking? Like, what did you do? Did you use a nicotine patch? Did it take time? He said, no, I just stopped smoking, right? Like, that's the kind of, you know, guy my dad is. So I'm built off of that. But everybody isn't going to see that point of view, you know? So, for, so when I talk to the black woman that I love, you know, by my side, she's a social worker. So we'll have these conversations where we're jogging and she'll say, no, boys, no, people have trauma and they, they need you to hear their issues and da, da, da. And I'll be like, no, he needs to get his shit together. You know, and, 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 and so ultimately people are going to see things differently. And I think the most productive way to proceed is to try to learn from the different points of view, not internalize them all. You don't have to internalize everybody's perspective, but at least try to understand it. And then if you're trying to work with that person or partner with them, you got to just accept the idea that there's no one universal truth. Your truth is your truth. That ain't everybody's truth. And when I learned that, I began to see things in a way that probably made people think I was weird. You know, with some of your Negro critics, um, you know, they'll say, hey, you know, you're charging thousands of dollars uh, for your PhD. You taught at Syracuse. Uh, you did the work in terms of getting your credentials. You've been in this for a long time. They'll say, hey, uh, don't spend your money with a Dr. Boyce at the Black Business School. But they would never say they're not attacking Phoenix University. They're not attacking 
Georgia State University. They're not attacking all these other institutions who are charging a lot, but you're going to go through there without knowing even how a, how a FICO score works. They're not going to teach you uh, some of the principles you really need to be successful, right? They're teaching a lot of abstract things, a lot of stuff that you're probably not going to need, right? Uh, but the Negro critics, they're not attacking the HBCUs, they're not attacking Harvard, they're not attacking any of the other institutions, they're loading up the pe helping loading the people up with debt, not teaching them really good things to stay out of debt, not teaching them anything to stay out of debt, not teaching them anything about practical investing, not teaching them anything about understanding blockchain and crypto. But why do you think the Negro critics will say, you're not worthy black men, Dr. Boyce Watkins, Dr. Boyce Watkins, you're not worthy to, to, to go ahead and start your own business school and take it to and, and wrap it up in a language that the black masses understand and go get this in the community like a religion. Well, why will they attack you with your school? But they're not attacking the other schools. Why? Why, why do you think that is? It's white supremacy, right? White supremacy um, an example might be when I taught at Syracuse University, um, if I'm a black professor, same credentials, top of my class, worked with the best people in the world, I walk in a classroom. Can you share with the audience your academic background uh, oh. from uh, undergraduate to teaching? Okay, um, I went to the University of Kentucky. I, I graduated with a triple major in finance, economics, and business management. I got two bachelor's degrees in four years. Uh, in undergrad, I was the Wall Street Journal Outstanding Graduating Senior, so I was the number one finance student. I beat all the white kids, right? I was the number one finance student in the whole school. Um, and uh, I got master's degrees. I completed the requirements in math, economics, and statistics. I got my PhD in finance from Ohio State University. Uh, in 2002, I was the only African-American in the world to get a PhD in finance. Um, and so, uh, and I, I lay that out so people can at least begin to accept the idea that maybe I'm not inferior because I'm black. Uh, because, you know, one of the things I have to say to black people on a regular basis is stop discriminating against us. You know, uh, stop discriminating, you know, because we, we already know white folks have a hard time accepting the idea that you've got a group of black people in, in the black business school whose credentials are second to none. Many of them even went to the top white schools, Stanford. Julian Gordon, our dean of entrepreneurship, is a Stanford graduate. Uh, you know, my brother went to Cornell. Uh, attorney Tanya Nebo is, you know, she does multi-million dollar deals. She went to University of Virginia Law School. Dr. Claude Anderson, you know, wrote Poweronomics. Dr. Venetia Dutra is one of the few black women on the earth to have a PhD in finance. Like you're really getting Wakanda. Like you're getting straight, high quality black excellence in every shape or form. You know, so ultimately, um, you know, we have to kind of have this conversation where we have to say, uh, okay, we understand your concerns about uh, anything you want to be concerned about. But don't you have bigger fish to fry? Because I'm sitting there talking to somebody who is $100,000 in debt uh, from a mediocre university with mediocre professors who couldn't teach them the beginnings of how to succeed economically and especially how to succeed while being black. They know nothing about trying to make it through this life while being black. We know all about that. Everything, our whole experience is laced in blackness. So we're the ones who can actually give you the support that you need. And believe me, we would have been happy. We'd be able to do so many things if you'd given us that $100,000 you gave to mediocre white university. But instead of giving us the 100000 we might say, okay, over the course of the next year, you know, pay us $100 a month, you know, or something like that. And, and, and so what will happen is that people, that, that familiarity will breed contempt. It, it's sort of like this disbelief 
that black people can create something that's so excellent that it's better than what white people have created. That's why I say that white supremacy is, is, in, is laced in the DNA of, of many of us, and not just white folks. So other uh, Negro critics, uh, you know, they, 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 they kind of saw opening where uh, you were getting advice from an Asian marketing professional, and he suggested that you guys work together and he's helping you optimize uh, your marketing uh, to, for your business. So the way I interpret that is, duh, you know, the folks are going to be, uh, you know, reaching out to potential partners who can help them to be successful, right? And some, in some cases, you may go with a, a business, a non-black business, right? So they specialize in something that you're looking for, uh, right? You go to Home Depot to buy tools, uh, you know, that's not black owned. Uh, you may, uh, within the advertising sphere or, uh, marketing, you know, you may work with another company and that person is not of your race. Uh, why should you be locked up, uh, and inflexible in terms of how you can build your business? Why, why would you be locked up? Right? So the criticism is, uh, Dr. Boyce Watkins is working with this Asian guy and he's the Asian guy's working with your platform, so he's a fraud. Yeah, I I think that that sort of um, analysis. Not, I mean, obviously, it's incorrect, but also it it reflects a point of view, right? It reflects that that disbelief that's implanted in us that makes us say there is no way you must be a fraud because there's no way a black person on their own can achieve that level of success. There's no way, it's not possible, right? So what'll happen is you'll have people that'll formulate these conspiracy theories, um, everything from, I, I, and there are videos out there literally that would say it's like, I think there was a video that said, I'm financially backed by the Jews. And, uh, and, and then there's another one that says I'm a government agent, right? Like, like so these, these really interesting things that people come up with, because I think fundamentally from the core, if, again, if I were a white business and, and we were doing these things, it wouldn't be a big deal, right? But because you're black and what you're doing is unique and it's successful. I, we haven't seen this before. You're yes. targeting the community. We're suspicious. So many other people have come in to rape us. Right, right. And, you know, and my position is that, um, is that I, I eventually had to learn to let some of that go because I know who owns my house, right? We know who runs everything. Uh, we don't discriminate. We don't believe in discrimination uh, because if I did discriminate, then I'd be no different from the white corporations that didn't hire black people. So I don't discriminate, but people that come and work with us, they, they know that they're in our house. And, and what people, what a lot of black folks don't know yet, and this is something I, I try to teach my students is that there's a difference between working with a white guy when, when you're the subordinate versus working with him and he's the subordinate or working with him and you're a partner, there's a different level of, of treatment and respect that you receive because at the end, you know, when you talk about building an economy, which is what we want to do in the black community, you can't build an economy that's in isolation like a North Korea type situation. You want your economy to trade with the rest of the world. You want to integrate with the rest of the world. So I tell my students, look, when you build your business, don't just sell to black people, sell to everybody. Just make sure you have a trade surplus so that you're, you're receiving more than you're giving away. But at the end of the day, you have to go uh, where the expertise is. 
You've got to learn from other cultures. Uh, I, I've read entire books about Jewish culture to understand how do they teach wealth to their children from an early age because I want to know how this all works. And I would partner with a Jewish guy in a minute as long as he understood that this is our house. If you come in our house, you don't disrespect this house. So, so I think, you know, I think that for many of us, um, because this is new territory, we're not really used to, you know, true black sovereignty. Um, you know, it, it, it confuses people. And, uh, and, and what I've learned is that, you know, there are people that are going to kind of get it. There are people that are going to believe you. And then there are people who will refuse to believe no matter what. And, uh, you know, and, and, and it is what it is. Your marketing, at least as an observer, I'm a fan. Uh, I've been watching you for, for, for years. Uh, your marketing is very on point, uh, and it appears to be self-taught, uh, which I could relate to in terms of when I got into the digital media business, you know, there wasn't a school, there wasn't a textbook, there, you know, it's kind of self-taught, right? Um, the, the market's evolving. Can you share with the audience, uh, you know, kind of the key ingredients uh, of your marketing strategy that has helped you be successful? Well, let me say this. First of all, I'll say, you know, Coming from the founder of, of, of Boss Up and Moguldom, that means a lot, brother. I, I, I have to say that, you know, because I've always had admiration for you. In the Black Wealth Boot Camp, one of the first, the first lecture, I, I mentioned you as when they named you the king of digital media and everything else. So, so you were uh, somebody that, I, that we saw in an aspirational context uh, because that's the future of the black community. You know, guys like yourself. Uh, Lamar Tyler, what he does with Black and Married with Kids. He's become a millionaire by getting black families to be healthier. Uh, you look around, you look at even what Tariq Nasheed does with Hidden Colors, where he's got he's able to create some of you know the original blackbuster films, not blockbuster, blackbuster, because they're you know, they're everywhere. He's he's made a lot of money without necessarily going through those traditional channels, right? So so long story short, you know, going back to the question about marketing, one of the things I've observed with a lot of businesses in the black community is that we don't, I think we underemphasize the importance of good marketing. You know, um, I, I see a lot of businesses that come across where people um, will have this great idea and they'll put money into the idea even in some cases, but then there'll be no marketing budget. You know, I, I met a guy like that, a very smart guy. He won, he won one of these incubator competitions where they gave him a quarter million dollars and he put all his money into these engineers and developing the app, but there was no marketing budget. And I said, well, you know that when Hollywood puts out a movie, they spend probably twice as much on marketing the film as they spent actually creating it. Uh, so we've never believed that if we make it, they will come. Uh, we believe that, you know, if you make something, you have to find, figure out how, you know, what, what problem are you solving? Who are you helping? You know, so what do these people look like who are going to be interested in this product? Uh, how can you help them solve an important problem? And then how do you get this in front of them and, and, and create the relationship and build the trust that will lead them to want to transact with you? So I think of marketing the same way you think of love or the, the same way you might think of relationships. Uh, you know, no matter how attractive you are, you can't walk up to somebody on the street and say, hey, you look cute. Can we go have sex now? Right. It's not going to work. Right. No matter how attractive you are, most decent people are going to say hell no. Right. So what you do, though, is there are steps in that process and and the steps involve sort of showing or creating the reciprocity, showing the consistency, showing that they can trust you with their body. And then at that point, 
deeper transactions can take place after that. You know, like uh, going to coffee turns into going to dinner, going to dinner turns into a visit to the house, visit to the house turns into a kiss, a kiss turns into whatever. Next thing you know, you're, you're getting married or whatever it is you're doing, right? So I think of marketing the same way. So one of the main things I try to do uh, in terms of, you know, connecting with people and, and looking at the different brands, whether it's my brand specifically or the Black, Black Business School brand, is I want there to be consistency. I like for people to know uh, who I really am. I don't want to build a brand. I don't want to do, you know, I think the big mistakes Tiger Woods made, uh, Bill Cosby made, OJ Simpson made, is that they built brands that were not consistent with who they were as human beings. And so my, my goal was, if you, I told, I said this to my friend Mark Lamont Hill about 12 years ago. I said, you know, if people know my name, I don't care if they like me or they hate me, they need to know what I stand for and who I am as a person. It doesn't matter if you like me or not. I'm going to be me, right? And, and I did that because I saw celebrities that would trap themselves by their brands. Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears did that too. Whitney Houston did that. They, they, they create this illusion and then when people start finding out who they really are, they're shocked and appalled, you know, that, that Whitney has this other life, right? So, um, so for, for me, brand building and marketing and everything else becomes a, a natural scenario where I show that, first of all, it starts with love. I show people that I love them. I want what's best for them. I want to help them. Um, I show consistency. I'm there every day. People, some people, yeah, yeah some people, been, yeah, some people have been watching me online for a decade now. You know, and because I like it, this it's me living, it's me being who I am, right? Um, I think I can add value because I'm not stupid. You know, I got some education. I'm like, hey, hey, but let me let me tell you a couple things. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. And then what that does is over time, it leads into a a a a um a a a, a low pressure scenario in which I kind of say, look, if you feel like I've really helped you, if you feel like I've really been good to you and good there for you, uh, you know do you mind helping us out too? <laughs> we got this thing over here and we think that it can really help, you know, help you go a little further in your process. Would you consider at least hearing me out as I, as I pitch this to you real quick, you know, and, and that, that leads to natural trade. So it's not high pressure stuff. So I'm not really a salesperson. My goal is just to be me. And I believe enough. I, I like me enough to believe that if I'm just who I am, that people will see that there's value here because I inherently know that there's value uh, beneath that surface. In terms of recruitment for the school, what's been your most successful marketing channel uh, in terms of bringing in uh, students and the students converting? You know, we, we like Facebook a lot. Um, Facebook, you know, Facebook is, we have a love-hate relationship with Facebook because they banned a couple of our pages for alleged hate speech, which, you know, I don't hate anybody, yeah. kind of, you know, but that's what they do. They but, just, yeah, I mean, there's no black people on those policy teams, so it's, it's kind of like redlining. At least our experience is, like, they start seeing stuff, uh, for example, uh, one of our uh, brands, you know, posted stuff about Barack Obama or Beyonce. They got some folks on there where they'll say, we don't like this. We don't want it on our platform. Uh, we've got complaints from users who I assume to be white. You know, the black people love this stuff. Uh, but their policy team at Facebook uh, is really sick. Uh, so, so, so these white folks, they will bring in all their biases, all their interpretations of black culture, and they can go in sub subjectively and say, this black stuff is edgy, too edgy, but this white stuff is okay. White supremacy. You know, white supremacy doesn't mean you're a racist. Uh, if you're a white supremacist, you don't actually have to be, um, in, in, at least not overtly racist. Uh, all you have to do is 
uh, exert your power over black people. And then at that point, you become a white supremacist. So literally, if you are a white person and you say, um, everybody should eat pickles for dinner. And I say, well, I don't like pickles. And you say, well, uh, if you don't eat pickles for dinner, then you should be put in prison. And and I say, well, that's wrong. But you have the power to put me in prison. Then you're going to do that. And then you can say, well, I didn't do it because you're black. I did it because you don't eat pickles. So on your, your Facebook marketing, I assume that they're converting at a high level. Uh, do you work with a partner to manage that or do you manage that kind of in-house? Uh, we do both. We do both. If you're interested in advertising on the Go podcast, uh, you can go to moguldom.com forward slash G-H-O-G-H. Once you're there, click on the advertising link. Let's get back to the podcast. Men being called out on abuse uh, has been uh, obviously a good thing, right? The, cult- the culture, the society needs to move forward. We're... Uh, more action is taken in terms of the abuse of women, which is promiscuous, uh, I believe. It has been promiscuous. It is promiscuous in terms of men abusing women, my view. Uh, so Tony Robbins, the Me Too movement came for him, uh, essentially, where he said, hey, you know, some of these Me Too women, they're looking for attention. And he was kind of dismissive of that movement. And one of our guests, Karen Fleshman, uh, the great Karen Fleshman, uh, an activist lawyer uh, out of San Francisco, she said on this show that the way Tony Robbins responded may indicate that he has something in his past in terms of men who are soft on abusing women, they could have something in their past. It calls into question. Do you believe that that assumption is correct? I think that that assumption, I don't, I, I don't know if it's correct or not, because I don't. But just in I, general, but, not necessarily Tony Robbins. Right. But, but would it hey, be if, you, if you see, let's say black men specifically being soft on the abuse of women, the rape of women, the harassment of women. If you see a black man being soft on abuse, could that indicate that this man either has something abusive towards women in his past? Are possibly uh, he shares the values of the abusers. Do you believe that like a lot of that stuff is there when you see black men who are soft on the abuse of women? We could say this. We know that an abusive man would probably not support the Me Too movement the way it looks right now. But that does not mean that a man who does not support the Me Too movement must be an abuser. You know, it's almost like how they were trying to prove that OJ killed Nicole because he abused her. That might increase the probability, but that is not, that's not the same as proving that he did it or proving that he's a murderer. There are some, you know, very radical elements out of San Francisco, out of Hollywood, uh, where just like in Islam, you have terrorists, you have fanatical Muslims, right? Uh, Muslims who will kill children, they'll kill anybody. But there's a, there's a pocket of folks in Islam who are fanatical, who are terrorists. And in this feminist movement, this radical feminist movement, do you see a pocket of white women and black women who are with them banging that they are going too far in indiscriminately attacking black men. Yes, there certainly is a pocket, right? There's in any movement, you have your extremists, you know, and 
you know, an argument to be made is that one, obviously the extre- extremists are at risk of undermining the movement or watering down the movement or having people not respect the movement, right? Uh, if, you're, if you're too much of a hardliner, you lose your ability to, uh, to gain the respect of those who are trying to simply be fair and trying to seek out the truth. Um, on the other hand, though, uh, some would say that your hardliners uh, do add value. They add strength to the movement. The same way Malcolm X's presence added uh, legitimacy to what Dr. King was doing. It was like in the Black Panthers. You know, so Dr. King is like, I hear, I come here offering peace and love. And the Black Panthers are like, yeah, and we got shotguns. You know, so you better give him what he wants or, or it's going to get real up in here, right? So I think that, you know, the Me Too movement does need its extremists as long as they're doing it for the right reasons and trying to be honest and fair. Um, I think that the problem, though, obviously, is that you have some, you don't just have the extremists, you just have the flat out liars. You have the, um, you know, the, those who are exploiting the movement. Like, like I have a man dumped me and he hurt my feelings, so I'm going to go call him a rapist and I'm going to ha- use the hashtag me too when I do it. And everybody's going to believe he raped me because I said it on Twitter. And that's happened. That's happened thousands of times. And so, you know, what it, we need to understand is that not everybody who supports the Me Too movement is a victim. You have some perpetrators in the Me Too movement who are victimizing other people. And so I, I think that, you know, we have to deal with that and be honest with that. Because what the thing is, it doesn't matter if you support Me Too or not. Even if you support what's going on in the Me Too movement, you must deal with, 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 those, with, with those liars or manipulators or whatever because they're going to undermine the ability of legitimate victims to receive the justice they deserve. If you guys can indiscriminately, some of you guys, a lot of you guys, if you can indiscriminately start to go after black men where you, know, you start creating a cloud where we're all abusers, we're all rapists, uh, the majority of us are abusing women, are violating women, are harassing women. If you're going to indiscriminately go after black men, and it looks like we're at the time where there's going to be some banging between the radical feminists and the broader black community who's thinking like a whole. We're not going to be separated by these political movements out of San Francisco, right? So if you can indiscriminately go after black men, we're all harassers, we're all rapists, we're all abusers. There's an extreme segment who's creating that cloud over black men that if you can indiscriminately go after the black man, why don't you bang like that against the white man and white woman from a racial standpoint? If you can indiscriminately put a dark cloud over most black men and you're judging us in the extreme out with this feminist jihadi movement, the radical element of this movement, please apply that to race. Please apply that to white folks. If you're going to come over here and start putting clouds and questions on the majority of black men, we're all suspects now. We're abusers. We're harassers. We're rapists. You need to apply that to race. Just, just let, let's keep it consistent here. Because if we were, when you find a black person, and I don't find too many of them, when black people start to put clouds on white folks, that is such a big controversy that the majority, the majority of the Democrats are like this. Put clouds on the Democratic Party. You're not going to see Negroes do that. But now 
Negroes have been co-opted in this, I believe, in this extremist jihadi movement out of California where most black men are under suspicion. Uh, we're suspects, just like on the street with the police. We're suspects, automatic. This is part of the extreme segment in the feminist jihadi movement out of California. Well, you know, what, what, what you're describing right there, in my opinion, is, um, is uh, America business as usual. That's business as usual in America. You know, you know uh, a lot of the, the most extreme elements of the Me Too movement, um, you know, they, they've kind of become bullies. You know, um, it's another way of describing a terrorist, right? They're bullies, and, and bullies pick on the weakest victims. Right? So the, uh, politically speaking, uh, sociologically speaking, the weakest victim in America is the black male. The black male has the least protection uh, politically and economically. Um, the black, it's easy to vilify a black male as well because everyone's afraid of the black male. So basically, um, you know, their, their attacks on black men are going to be different from what they do with white, with white men because it's easier for them to go get a Bill Cosby than it is to go get a, you know, a Bill Clinton, right? Because, you know, they could easy, if Bill Clinton were black, Bill Clinton would be in prison right now. You know, and, and, and they, but the thing is, they're not going to go get him because Bill Clinton would have support. You know, people will back him up. You know, people, uh, if, if, in fact, when we tried to bang on, say, a white person or a white institution that is beloved by white They're people, not all like that. Right. You're being too harsh. Exactly. You're being too controversial. There you go. I'm not going to work with you from a business standpoint because you're too controversial. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They, but they, but if I'm banging on a gender perspective, yes, let's make this deal. Mm-hmm. Let's be friends. That's not a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, like look, even look at the, the Starbucks thing, right? If you did a poll, I'm sure there are polls out there. Black people and white people view Starbucks differently. You know, black, black people, a lot of black people I know are still angry over the controversy. A lot of white people are like, nah, it's no big deal. It's just one manager, one situation. Who cares? I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm not, you know, telling people what to think about that. I'm just saying that in almost any controversy like that that's racial, when they poll black people, their their view is different from white people in almost every the OJ trial. Black people thought he was innocent. White people thought he was guilty. The Bill Cosby trial. A lot of black people feel, yeah, Bill was a bad guy, but he shouldn't have been convicted. A lot of white people say, no, he should have been convicted. You know, and, and so I think that you know in America, people kind of just protect their own. And some groups have a great ability to do that. Some groups have a very, very little ability to do that. So when a black man is unfairly attacked by the Me Too movement, uh, they don't. It's not as if they have no support. Um, I know that you know when I've been attacked, you know, by white people for whatever reason, I have black people that stood by my side. I have black women that love black men. They love black men maybe more than they love feminism and everything else. And those are the types of women that would would support someone like me. Do you believe it's fair to say uh, that? with black women specifically, that black man has not been there to protect us against abuse. He's been violating us. Uh, he's been abusing us. Uh, and that the good black men, if you're out there, at least from their standpoint, the good black men, if they're out there, you guys need to be banging for us and you need to be banging against these other abusers in the community. Uh, but you guys are not speaking up. Do you believe that's a fair uh, statement? You know, I, I think that the, 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 the interaction between the black male and the black female has been so complicated by these systematic elements. Like, like mass incarceration alone just really disrupted the whole ecosystem. You know, it really did. 
And but what um, does that have to do with us speaking up against well, brothers who are abusing women? Well, the, the reason the reason it has it, it does well actually they can be disconnected, right? We can still do more, and the and the reason we should do more is because. We need the support of, of loyal black women in the community who need to feel like there are men who have their back. I think it goes back to why so many black men gangbang. Why, you know, so many black men want to be thugs. Why so many black men uh, don't have strong fathers in their lives, you know, on a daily uh, basis, right? Uh, and so the the sense of masculinity, the natural sense of masculinity has been uh, uh, perverted. It has been skewed in a way where at least some brothers out there, they believe being hard on women, abusing women, being violent towards women, that that is a, a man thing. You know, and, and so if you have a healthy balance in terms of the, the natural balance and, and kind of a, a, a healthy balance in the home, uh, I believe you're not reaching for these things to validate you. You're not reaching towards uh, something sexual or something violent uh, towards women to validate you. And again, I think that void is there. Uh, Obviously, it starts from slavery where you do not have a knowledge of self. You don't have a cultural heritage, uh, a strong line of cultural heritage. You don't know who you are. And then when you take out that, that, that kind of um, that strong father from most of our homes, this is where you start getting like it's a macho thing. Like, hey, I'm less of a man uh, if I defend women. It's not a guy thing to do to defend that sister. Yeah, and I think that's that's accurate. I mean, I get a lot of flack from brothers when I when I stand up for women, you know. I think I saw somebody call me Dr. Moist Twatkins. That was a nickname. Literally, they call me Moist Twatkins, right? Yeah. They, 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 you know, and I'll hear stuff like that. I think Umar Johnson called me Dr. Joyce Watkins, you know. Like, so you have, you have this, right? But being a man means I'm not going to get bitchy and upset about something somebody said. I kind of laughed when I heard it. You know, because that's what happens, right? You have those guys that are so insecure that they think that um, that that being kind to women makes you less of a man. But then you have men that are secure enough to know, yeah, you should be. You, of course, you should be nice to women. You nice to your mama. You nice. You know, like if you're not nice to a woman, she's gonna cheat on you or leave you and hurt your feelings. So why wouldn't you be nice to a woman who's nice to you, right? So I think that just kind of, um, I think that what happens in media, and this again relates to white supremacy, is that. The black male images that are presented, especially to these little black boys who grew up in a single parent household because their daddy got shipped off to prison for drugs or whatever. Um, you know, the images and media of black men are not uh, are not productive images that are typically promoted. They're not images that allow, you know, for the, the, the uh, you know, a complete expression of the diversity of black male, black maleness, whatever that means, you know, cause so you have extremes, right? You have people that say that black, black men are too hyper-masculine cause they think every black man is trying to be like that rapper that wants to carry a gun and kill people. And, and, and that's the problem, right? But then you have people that say, Oh, stop telling your sons to man up. Like that uh, he, men can be sensitive. Men can be this, men can be that. No, you're, you're feeding into the complete emasculation of black men, which is another big problem. You got a lot, 
lot of you got a lot of mamas raising their little boys to become girls, and they don't understand that. Like, like it's one thing if your son's just gay and he can't help it, but I've seen single moms say, "Ain't nothing wrong with my baby being a baby forever." Well, your baby is supposed to be somebody's husband, father, and protector, and he can't do that if he doesn't at least know how to man up if the situation calls for it. You know, and I got to say, this is the popular crowd. This is the consensus crowd now in terms of folks on the left, extremists on the left. Their ideology, their belief system, their values is now kind of like a mob, right? So they've been victimized too, right? They've been marginalized in, 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 in different ways. But now I feel like the consensus is coming for that black Christian. The, the left consensus in, in, in America, they're coming for that black Christian. They're coming for that black Muslim. They're coming for that black man and woman who believe in more traditional African values and principles. And so we reached a period in the United States where I believe there's going to be a lot of disruption in terms of traditional alliances and connections where this stuff that's coming from the left is going to start to bump into folks of faith, folks who believe in traditional African values. And so do you believe that, you know, the black community is strong enough to start banging back? Because I, I feel like the, the acceleration uh, uh, of um, some of these viewpoints, now I see black men, they're scared to speak up. I see Christians, they're scared to speak up. Muslims, they're scared to speak up. Now the fear is starting to set in, right? And so I talked to a brother who works at Google, an engineer, Christian brother. Uh, he wants to be a preacher one day. Uh, he said it's already happening, uh, that he believes that people of faith like himself who don't go along with the secular trends in society, the flavor of the day, if you don't go along with this stuff, that he, this brother, at, at the engineer at Google, said he believes that the persecution has started. Do you believe that black people of faith, in terms of Christianity, Islam, uh, in terms of they're living a certain way, they believe a certain way, folks who believe in traditional African culture, in terms of the thoughts, in terms of how to think about family, the roles in the family, do you believe? that that side is going to be strong enough to bang back in terms of the coming jihad against these institutions and people. Um, Political jihad. I believe they can, they can bang back. I, I, I think that, I mean, I mean do, you, do you see them? Cause, cause I see more fear setting and I see people, they're scared. Uh, at least I see a lot of fear out there uh, in terms of, I can't say this. I can't really rep my beliefs because it's unpopular. People are going to view me a certain way, you know. You know, I, I think that um, the persecution uh, that I've seen, it has come mostly from the left. I, I think that, you know, there, there's I don't know a lot of liberals who really believe in freedom of speech. I just don't. You know, mo most liberals I know get offended. They get offended if you if you write with your left hand instead of your right, like they get offended if I pick this water bottle up and drink it fast when I should have drank it slow, they get offended by everything. Right. And in the, in the mind, what's been unfortunately planted in the mind of a lot of liberals is that if someone doesn't have views that are the same as your own, you don't hear them out. 
you know, you don't tell them that they're wrong. You just shut them down. It's like they want like a Saddam Hussein. They want a Saddam Hussein, a Gaddafi. They want uh, uh, MBS uh, out of Saudi Arabia, uh, who's now the king. They want a dictatorship. A lot of times it comes across as if you don't believe like us, if you don't step into this box, we're coming after you. And, that, and of course, that goes back to, I think, the, the acceleration of the, the fear. Yeah, my, my theory is that if you look at the history of liberalism in America, it seems to me that they're hell-bent on social engineering. They're really, really big on kind of deciding what society they want to live in and what they think is right. Um, and, 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 and it wouldn't surprise me in, say, 50 years if they start trying to find a way to make pedophilia just a sexual preference like everything else. Um, you know, I, I think that they have a way of kind of saying, like, we want to program you to think in a specific way. So when I hear now, the funny thing about the people on the right wing is that they're they're really big on these weird conspiracy theories, too. Like, you know, I, I, talk, I have friends that watch do nothing but watch Fox News all day and they don't even understand how what they're saying is just like what this other person said who watches the same shows, like they're kind of programmed to kind of repeat the same rhetoric, which is interesting too. Um, but but the, the problem on that liberal side is that they sort of, you know, sort of have this um, almost like this arrogant, you know, monopoly on the moral high ground that leads them to feel that they have the right to judge anything and, and everyone and, and to shut you down. If, if you're a conservative and you're, I don't see that all, that many situations where a liberal goes to speak at a school and, the, you know, the protests keep them from speaking. But I've seen, a, I can name a dozen cases where a conservative was coming to a university and they just did so many protests that they canceled the speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you bring up a very good point, an unpopular point uh, that, again, there's a certain wing within the liberal establishment that are jihadis. Essentially, you have to think and agree like them or they're looking to off you. Yeah, jihadists, um, you've got, uh, you know, you've got that communist influence kind of in there too. I this mean, is, this it, is it, you know, I, I think the hypocrisy uh, within the liberal establishment is like this. You're so intoxicated on democratic or liberal ideology you can't see the stuff that your own side is doing. So you can only see people doing stuff to you, but you can't see what your side is doing to others. And let me give you an example. Uh, Barack Obama in 2008. Uh, Wall Street, the banks, who skew Republican. Uh, you know, they're driving up in inequality. Uh, you know, they caused the financial crisis. There's a lot of greed. Their time is over. I'm coming in. The Democrats are coming in to protect the people, to check these greedy people. And so the Silicon Valley establishment, they fund Barack Obama. They're inside of his campaign. And the liberals, they run on Occupy, you know, kind of a Wall Street message that, hey, they caused the financial crisis. This greed in society is so bad and it's causing all this, these problems. So this is what the liberals are saying. A lot of Democrats are saying. So once Barack Obama gets elected, supported in large part by Silicon Valley, the billionaires, the institutions, Facebook, all the people in Silicon Valley, 
You have Google and Facebook taking nine out of every 10 digital ad dollars, it was reported uh, last year, out of the advertising industry. You have these companies getting massive and they're doing things. There's not one regulatory review. There's not one democratic push that's at least that I'm aware of that was public where let's look at what these greedy people are doing over here. The Republicans are just greedy, but we don't have <laughs> greedy people on our side. So during Barack Obama's eight years, he bangs on Wall Street, but you wouldn't see him bang on Silicon Valley. Why is that? Um, you know, I, I, well, I'll say this. I, I don't know if Obama really banged on any corporate entity because I, 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 I in terms of Wall Street and the financial crisis when we started to see Lehman Brothers go down and that type of stuff it played right into I believe uh, uh, his message it was perfect in terms of you know you can blame uh, uh, Wall Street for doing this I'm gonna take care of you uh, you know, they're not going, the greedy folks uh, with these corporations, when I get in office, they're not going to take advantage of us like this. Uh, th- th- their day is over. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's about, I, I didn't, I, you know, remember when he banged, when he was going in on Wall Street, there was the rhetoric, but the rhetoric was very different from the actions. Obama didn't prosecute a single Wall Street banker after the crisis occurred. And also that, that bailout money went to the banks. It didn't go to, the, to Main Street. Yeah, that's true. A, 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 a lot more could have been done. I agree with you, but you did see some regulatory changes. He tapped that regulatory button. Like, hey, we need to look at this stuff after the financial crisis. He did not tap the regulatory button for the billionaires out of Silicon Valley, the Facebooks, that white billionaire set that are doing some of the same sick things. It's a it's a greed problem. It's not a Democratic Party. It's not a liberal thing. It's a greed sickness in the society. But Barack Obama and the Democrats, they don't do anything. Why? Most of these people are liberal. They're, they're, they're their friends. But stop taking the moral high ground. Yeah, I think it's sort of like, you know, in the campaigns, you've got, you know, the bad guys and the good guys, right? So if I'm a Democrat... Um, it's easier for me to point to the bad guys being the Wall Street bankers because the crisis just occurred and the people that got hit the hardest were, you know, a lot of poor people, right? Democrats kind of build it, you know, they build all their power off of poor people. So um, that's an easy narrative, I think, for them to sell. Um, I do think that when you're talking, now when you're talking about what's, what happened with Silicon Valley, you, you've seen an exorbitant amount of power going to the Googles and the Facebooks. And the people who are most pissed off about that are the conservatives because the Googles and the Facebooks are, you know, inherently liberal organizations. And so, you know, this the, the, just the way these organizations are run, which pages they choose to ban, uh, how they're doing business uh, has has sort of been very anti-conservative. So I think that's why now in the Trump administration, you would see, you know, you, you see this this push to regulate the people in Silicon Valley, you know, because they're kind of, I think the people in Silicon Valley in the, in the eyes of the conservatives are seen as sort of these latte-sipping liberals who just happen to become, you know, have become the new billionaires. Uh, so, so I kind of think it's a natural sort of thing. Like, I, I think if you look at it from a bad guy, good guy perspective, you know, who's the victim, who's the perpetrator? Uh, in the case of the bankers, the perpetrators are the banks and the victims are, are poor people. That's the Democratic story. The uh, case of Silicon Valley, you know, the bad guys are these liberal corporations. The, the, the good guys or the guys who are being victimized, allegedly, are the conservatives, right? So that's a good Republican story. So that, that's how I'm seeing it played out. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamarlin Martin on 
on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.